Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We are in week two of our series, Work Out Your Faith. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer takes us a little deeper into Hebrews 12. If someone were to ask you, what is strength? What would you say? I believe to have strength, you have to have endurance. And to have endurance, you need encouragement. These three ingredients help provide a faith that endures. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message, I Want to Go to Church. message this morning that you want to be here, that none of you have come here with a drug problem today, that you've been drugged to church, that you actually enjoy being in God's house, you enjoy being with God's people, you enjoy being part of God's mission, what He's doing here on earth. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We are finishing up the book of Hebrews, not this morning. That would be quite a bit. We're just going to look at Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 17. In the book of Hebrews, in these final chapters, we're seeing these admonitions from the doctrine that he has built up all the way through, talking about the importance of Christ, the importance of uh, who Christ is, the importance of being united to Christ, and being united to Christ's body, as he spoke about in Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews, we have a number of these, these Jewish believers, and they're all over the map. We've got Jewish believers that are unbelievers. We've got Jewish believers who are infighting. They're not getting along. Some who have stopped coming to church altogether. You've got some who are legitimate Christians, these Hebrews, but they're tired. They're exhausted. They're worn out. For this reason... The gathering of the saints physically together is very, very important. Hebrews has certainly communicated that already. Prior to chapter 12, we look at chapter 10, and we read those famous verses in verse 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The word stir up means to prod, like a, with a poke with a sharp stick. Get them moving. Get them going in a forward direction. Somebody is stagnated. They're, they're not moving anymore. They're not moving forward for Christ. Let us... Stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. When he's talking about meeting together, he means physically present with one another. We're not just, they didn't have internet and phones back then, but they didn't just write letters to one another. They certainly was part of their communication, but they had to physically gather together for a purpose. He says, this is the habit of some to neglect getting together, but not you, some. He says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day in reference is the day of the Lord. The time when Christ returns, he returns in judgment to pour out his wrath upon a sinful world. And as we approach that day, are things going to get better every day in every way? Like the 1960s told us it would. Things aren't going to get better every day in every way, are they? It's going to get worse and worse and people won't endure sound doctrine. People are going to be falling away. They're going to be apostatizing. People that you used to think were Christians who abandoned Jesus. And it's going to get discouraging for those of you who are real Christians. He says, for that purpose, we need to make sure that we don't neglect the gathering of ourselves together for this encouragement and stirring one another up to love and good works all the more as the day approaches. It's even more important as things get difficult. Yet he's talking to a group of people here who have neglected, some of them, the gathering of themselves together. They might call themselves spiritual but not religious. Or you might hear them say something like, I love Jesus, but I don't love organized religion. You ever hear that? Oh, I'm spiritual. I, I love Jesus. I, I just don't believe in organized religion. Well, you know what's really funny is, who organized this religion? Was that you, one of you guys? Did Unity Baptist Church create religion back in 1837? Did we do that? 
the church is not, an, is not a construct of man, is it? Who built the church? Church was Jesus' idea. This whole idea of organizing ourselves into a church with elders and deacons and people and members and serving and, and going out into all the world and sharing the gospel. Do you think some man came up with that idea? Jesus said, talking to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, he says, you are Peter and upon this rock, what? I, Jesus, will build my church. See, this church belongs to Jesus, not you or me. This isn't your church. This isn't my church either. Whose is it? It's Jesus' church, and he's the one that's organizing it. So when we say, you know what, I don't like organized religion, we're saying, Jesus, I don't like what you created. I know, Jesus, you created the church because we need one another, but I think I'm better than that. I don't need that. I don't need people. I don't need to gather together. You might need that. That's good for you. I had a guy once I was sharing the gospel with, and he says, oh, I'm spiritual, not religious. He says, church is just for people whose faith is weak. I want to ask, who among us faith is so strong that we don't need one another? We all need that. And so Hebrews is talking to all these different groups here of those who, are, who have kind of walked away, those who have wandered, those who are spiritual, they're religious, you know, maybe, but they're not, uh, but they're not born again. He's talking to those who are truly born-again believers, but they're just tired. And so he's going to show us some of the things that a church should be doing for one another here. The first thing we're going to see here is, number one, the church provides strength. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2? We it, it borrows a race metaphor, doesn't it? Let us run the race with endurance. So this whole life that we do together, we're not meant to just be a lone runner in the woods. We're supposed to run as a team, as a relay, as a, this marathon together that we're doing. So he's using this race metaphor. I believe he's borrowing this race metaphor again in verse 12, because look at the verses of our, the first verse in our passage here. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Okay, drooping hands, weak knees. This runner's been running a while. He's that marathon runner. He's hit his wall. And he's, he starts feeling this complete depletion of what he's personally able to do by himself. And he's getting tired. And he's starting to wonder, is it really worth finishing this race? Why am I doing this? Am I just doing this for a medal at the end? I mean, what do I get out of this as a marathon runner? I mean, I just lose some toenails and I have a, a medal to hang on my wall. Why is it worth that? And they begin to contemplate, do I finish this race? Lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. You need to stay on the track so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Now, this passage here begins with the word therefore. It means that what we're talking about today is part of a larger conversation. What did we just talk about last week? The difficulty of being a Christian, right? It's not easy being a Christian. Now, it's all, consider the alternative. You, you'd be a non-Christian, non you go to hell for eternity. I would argue that's worse, but it's still, it's not easy being a Christian. You can get tired, okay? So, therefore, is talking about what was just talked about previously, being under the pain, the discipline of God, and you're tired, and you're weary, and he says to lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, Okay? God, knowing that we're going to have some tired people, gave us a church so that we could strengthen one another, stir each other up to love and good works. You know, a verse that my wife and I had printed on our wedding napkins. Do they do that anymore? Do you print verses on wedding napkins? It was cool back in the 90s, so uh, we did it. Anyway, it was Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 11, and it shows the importance of having somebody there with you. And this, I think this certainly illustrates what a church does for one another. It says two are better than one because they have a great reward, right, for their labor. 
And if one falls, another one is, uh, is there to lift up his fellow. But woe to him. Woe. That's a proclamation of divine judgment. You're in a place of sorrow and pain and difficulty. Woe unto him who what? Is alone. When he falls, he doesn't have another to pick him up. That's the church, friends. When you're out there by yourself, out there in the world, you can't be a lone Christian. God doesn't ever call you the wolves of God, this lone wolf. God is, I wish he did, but God doesn't call us the eagles of God, right? This, this beautiful, majestic eagle soaring by himself, doesn't need anybody, has no care in the world. He's up above all the world's problems. What kind of animals God call you and me? He calls us sheep. The only, madden, uh, the only animal in the modern world that can't survive on its own. You know, needs a shepherd, has to be with other sheep for protection. And left to ourselves, we're going to wander into a ditch, and we're going to get stuck, and we're going to die, or we'll get eaten by a wolf. Okay, woe unto you when you're by yourself. And so Hebrews 12, uh, verses 12 to 13, is going to mention three things here that the church, that we do for one another. First thing we're going to see here is that we strengthen one another. He says that we are to lift up drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Now, I realize that some commentators have noted that they believe this is for you to do to yourself as an individual Christian. I don't believe that's actually what's in mind here. I believe he's talking to the Hebrews as a collective body, those who are gathering together religiously, who know and live together with one another. He's talking to us as a body, and I've got reasons for that. First of all, in context, he's talking to a group of people. He's talking about let us collectively let us do these things uh, this in particular this verse here when he talks about you know drooping hands and weak knees he's quoting Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 3 well in Isaiah 35 is he talking to the individual or is he talking to them as a nation he's talking to them as a nation because in verse 4 he explains what he means in Isaiah 35 as to what it means to lift up the, the drooping hands and strengthen weak knees he says say to those who have an anxious heart those who are struggling, those who are worried, those who are full of fear and anxiety. You look for those people who are hurting, and he says, tell them, be strong and fear not. And so the lifting up of the hands and the strengthening of the weak knees is something that the nation of Israel in the book of Isaiah were doing for one another. Okay, that we strengthen one another. I think that's what's in mind here in Hebrews chapter 12. He's talking to us as a body of Christ. And isn't that the illustration the Bible often uses? He talks about us as a body. One is a hand, one is a foot. The hand does not say to the foot, I have no need of you. We need each other, and we strengthen one another. That's what bodies do. If I, if I go to get injured and I'm falling down, my arms aren't just going to stand by my side and I'm going to fall like a plank. You know, my hands are going to go out there and they're going to prevent the injury or they're going to take the hit for me. And that's what we do as a church. We take the hit for one another. We encourage one another. In this race, we're not running alone. Even those of you who are mildly insane and have run marathons, you're still not alone, are you? Is there anybody else on the track who are helping you? I mean, where do you think the, the table full of refreshments came from? Where do you think those people with holding bottles of water came from? You're not by yourself, are you? There's people there to strengthen you and lift you up along the way. And down the road, and especially as you get toward the end, you've got your friends and your family, and they're cheering you on. They're encouraging you. Come on, keep going. You just got a little bit further. They're strengthening your drooping hands and your weak knees. And that's what the church does. We encourage one another. But B, we also make straight paths for your feet. In a race, it's not like they just line up a whole bunch of people out there in the woods and say, you know what, take off. Uh, when you get to about the, what is it, 20, 22-mile mark, somewhere around there, 
Yeah, okay. Once you get down to about that point, just stop and let us know your time. No, there's a path that's been set. If you want to compete in this race, you've got to follow this path this way. You've got to go here, then you've got to go here, and you've got to turn here, and you've got to follow here, and eventually you cross the finish line half dead, but you did it. That's the race. And somebody laid out a course for you to follow, and if you want to get your time recorded, you've got to follow the path they gave you. And so when the Bible is talking about here that we make straight paths for our feet, that there is a path that God has told us to go in his word. There's a path we're told to follow. When we get off that path, that's the very definition of sin. The word sin actually means to miss the mark, that God has a very specific target, a very specific path that he wants us to follow, and we're not to deviate to the right or the left. You're not to be one of these people who think they're really smart and clever in the national parks and, you know, I see this path that's laid out for me. I do see the signs that say don't get off the path, but I think I know a better way. I'm Daniel Boone. I can chart my own way. I can track foxes. I can live off the land. And they get off in the wilderness and what happens? You read about them in the news three days later, some helicopter found them half starved and almost dead. That's what happens when we go off the path. We're not supposed to go off the path or deviate. Instead, the church tells us to make straight paths. Well, we don't make the path, but what do we do? We point people to the path. That's what a church does. We take the word of God and we say, this is the path of God. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to Facebook. Don't listen to your buddies at work. They don't know the path. Their path is what seems right to them. And there's a way, the Bible says, that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are death. So you don't want to follow man's path. Test one, two, and we're back. All right. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to preach any shorter. <laughs> Just means you all get to lunch a couple minutes later. All right, there we go. So there is a path that God wants us to follow. Clearly, we didn't follow that path from my microphone today, but uh, there's a path that God wants us to follow. And it's the church's job to lay out the course for the people. Here's where God tells you to run. When a church compromises because we just want to fill the pews with people, and just tell people what they want to hear, you're actually okay. You don't need to change anything about your life. God loves you the way they are, wants you to stay the way they are. God wants you just to do what seems right to you. You decide what's good and true for you, and everybody goes to heaven when we die, and, and you can pack a house full of, full of people that way, and you're going to send them all to hell. A church has a job not to compromise on the truth, to show people, like those people in the marathon, we got to point the direction that people need to go. If not, it's the Laugh Olympics, okay? I know that dates me a little bit. When I was a little kid, I used to watch this cartoon. Anybody ever watch it with me? Anybody? Laugh Olympics? The old Hanna-Barbera cartoons, they dominated the market in the 80s. You had Yogi Bear and Scooby-Doo and Space Ghost and all these other, these really fun characters. And they would mash them all up into this big race, have all these cartoon characters in one cartoon. And they're racing each other. It was so much fun. I loved it. Uh, now, inevitably you'd have some villain type and he'd be racing out up front real fast. He gives all the gas he could and he gets up to the first signpost and what does he do? He flips it around. You're supposed to go left, but he makes him go right and all. And then eventually Yogi Bear comes up and you know, and it doesn't look like we're supposed to go this way. 
you know, but he goes that way anyway. And he goes off the cliff and he's all of a sudden he's in the water and they're sinking slowly, you know, like they do in cartoons. And, and that's, that's what the bad guys do. They give people mixed signals. They confuse people. You don't know which path is right. And that's what a compromising church will do. They'll say, you know what? I realize the word of God can be offensive to some people, so we're just gonna change it. And we have altered the path for people. We've not made straight paths for them to walk in. And they've gotten off path, and some of them, see, have gotten injured. He talks about here, in uh, Hebrews 12 describes those who are lame, those who are injured, those who, whose limbs are out of joint. These are people who have sinned. They've gotten off of God's path, thought they could do life their way. And they have gotten injuries. They didn't just sin and feel bad and repent. They sinned for long enough that it had long-lasting destructive effects in their life. And now they are ruining parts of their lives because of choices to get off the path and disobey God. Now, as a church, what do we do with that individual who has strayed from the path of God long enough that they've injured themselves, they've hurt themselves, the guy has gambled all his family's money away, they're homeless now because they've, you know, given it all up to drugs and alcohol, they've ruined their marriage because of adultery and affairs, what do we do with that person? Clearly, you know, we just talk about them, right? We just, we just share, did you hear about this person? Can you believe? You know, we wag our fingers at them and that's not what we do. What do they really need? They need help. I mean, can you imagine if you have a, a person, let's say you've, you've gone skiing and you go down the slope and you took a slope that's maybe too big for you. You, didn't, you were too embarrassed to ski down the bunny slope, men. And so you go down something that, this looks cool, black diamonds. I like black diamonds. I'm going to try that. And, and you go down this 40-degree slope and you find yourself, man, you're, you, you've twisted your leg. You know, it's like behind your head. And you haven't been able to do that since you were an infant, you know? And, and you, they find you just all tangled up like a pretzel on the slope. And you're waiting for someone to come help you. And all of a sudden, these paramedics, you know, ski on by and they see you. And first thing they do is they just stand there and talk to each other. Would you look at this guy? <laughs> Where, what brand of skis are those anyway? Walmart brand skis? This guy has no business being out here. What an idiot. What a fool. What is he? And they just sit here and mock him. Is that what the guy needs on the ground right there? He doesn't need to be scorned. He doesn't need to be mocked. He doesn't need reminded that the, the choice to wear cheap skis and skip the bunny hill and go straight down a black diamond slope, he doesn't need to be reminded that that was foolish and just it was an unwise choice. Likewise, when people sin, they don't need people of the church just telling them, hey, you're a really awful person. You know that? I can't believe you would do that. That's really dumb. Why'd you do that? They don't need to be talked about. They need to be talked to. They need what we need on the slope there. We need first aid. Okay, so we are to look to those whose limbs are out of joint. Galatians 6.1 speaks to this. He says, brothers, if any of you is overtaken in a trespass or transgression, that means you've intentionally gone across the line. You've crossed a boundary of God. You got off his path. He says, you who are spiritual, you're spiritually minded people. You're walking with God. What are we to do with him? We restore them. It doesn't just say gossip about them. Don't complain about them. Don't wag the finger. He says, restore them. That word restore means to put back into place. It's like somebody who has a dislocated shoulder and you do the difficult work. It's painful, right? Anybody of you had a dislocation before? Does that feel good going back in? And that guy pops it back in. You see it. You've seen it in the movies at least. And he puts it back in. The guy's screaming out in pain. But then when he's done, he's like, thank you. Now I can move my shoulder again. I can use that again. That's what they need. And that's what Galatians 6, 1 is referring to. You see somebody who's lame, who's 
drooping hands and weak knees, their limbs out of joint, put it back into place. Do the hard work of that. He says, but do it with a spirit of gentleness. Nobody wants a rough doctor. He says, do it with a spirit of gentleness and also what? Keep watch on who? Yourself, lest you be tempted. In other words, it's only by the grace of God you're not the one needing the shoulder set back in place. We're not better than other people. We're just not there right now. In fact, Proverbs 24, 16 says, the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Wicked stumble, they fall down, they stay down, they just choose to live here. It's a lot easier just to live in sin than to fight it. So we're just gonna live here and that's, that's the wicked. But the righteous man, does he still fall down? Does he still sin? Does he still make mistakes? Does he make foolish choices? But the Bible says, righteous men fall seven times. But what is it that distinguishes them from being righteous? They get back up again, okay? When, some, when you are confronted, when you face the consequences of your sin, when you're in pain, when God brings conviction to your heart, when somebody confronts you lovingly and privately, you respond in repentance. That's what righteous people do. We're like Rocky. Rocky was, you ever watch the Rocky movies? Rocky was never a great boxer. Not truly a great boxer. I mean, Apollo Creed was faster. Uh, Mr. T was clearly a better boxer, better puncher. Even Ivan Drago, much bigger, much stronger than him. Even Rocky 5 or 15 or 25, whichever it is, you know, Tommy Gunn was younger and stronger and just a better boxer at that time. But what made Rocky such a successful boxer? It's that he just kept getting back up again. But what I want you to notice is he didn't do it by himself. His old buddy Mickey, that old man who was always, you know, chewing him out, he looked like just a mean codger of an old fellow. But he would always tell Rocky what he needed to hear to get him back up off the mat. And at first, it looked like Mickey wasn't a very nice guy. It looked like Mickey didn't love Rocky, but did Mickey love Rocky? He left the gym to him when he died. Okay, he loved him. And he said the hard words that Rocky needed to hear to get Rocky back up off the mat so Rocky didn't ruin his life and ruin his career. And that's what the Bible says we do for one another, Galatians 6.1. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profound. Of an enemy. Faith, friend, that sometimes we're going to hurt one another. That we're going to. All right, clearly this is a message Satan don't want you to hear today. So listen up. <laughs> Some important things here. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, sometimes if you have somebody who truly loves you, are they going to say things that upset you? Don't do that. Don't say that. Don't you be flirting with that girl at work. You don't want to hear that right then. You want all the people who are telling you on Facebook, oh, you're great. Life is all about you. You deserve this. And they're just all about giving you what you want at that moment. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy means that not everybody who hurts your feelings is your enemy. And not everybody who kisses you and tells you what you want to hear is your friend. A true friend wants what's best for you. They're going to be Mickey. They're going to be saying the hard words in the corner like Rocky. Number two, the church protects the peace. You know, left to ourselves, do people fight? I mean, study world history. When you read your world history book, 
is it really just about how humans all got along and how, you know, we made s'mores together in history, about scientific advancements and philosophic and cultural achievement? It's not primarily what world history is about. When you study world history, what is it? It's about war. It's about people fighting and competing for things and going after each other for things. Left to ourselves, that's what people do because we have sinful lusts in our heart. That's what James said in James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The reason that we have fighting is because we have sin. Generally speaking, when you have fighting in a church, it's not because those people are fighting usually for what is, what is great. They're fighting for the Lord's glory. Usually when people are fighting, they're fighting for their own lust. That's what James says here. We fight for just what benefits me, for what I like. It's why when most people leave, you know, I've never had a person leave a church that I was, I was leading because we weren't doing enough evangelism. Generally, the church is okay if we don't evangelize the lost. We're pretty okay with people going to hell. People generally don't leave church because we're not discipling people, you know, fulfilling Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. We're, we're okay if people never grow. What do people get mad about? We get about about silly things. You went from pews to chairs? I'm gone. You, you changed the service time? I'm out of here. Oh, you, you don't have this favorite activity or this favorite activity? I'm gone. The time that people usually leave are after business meetings. What does that say? It wasn't about what we're doing as a church. It's about control. And we can get that way, where it's all about me, and then we fight and war amongst another. And if we're not careful, we start looking like the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Corinth, if you didn't know, is not a spiritual church. Very carnal. The church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I couldn't even speak to you as spiritual people, I had to speak to you as infants in Christ. They're warring and they're fighting amongst one another. They're angry with one another. And yet, and what does verse 14 tell us? Strive for peace and with everyone for with, uh, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I like this word strive. In our text today, here in verse 14, he says that when it comes to peace, it's not something that happens naturally. Have you figured that out? Do you automatically, after an argument, find yourself at a place of peace with your wife, men? You don't. You have to strive for it. Even in a church, what do we have to do? We have to strive for peace with all people. That word strive, as I was doing a word study on it this week, the word strive, what I found out is I compared it to all the rest of the uses in the New Testament. You know what I found about strive? It's not usually translated. This Greek word is not usually translated strive. Do you know what it's translated as? Persecute. Now, I'm not saying we're called to persecute one another here in the church. That's not good. But the reason it's translated persecute is because this term means to follow after, to chase after, to pursue. When you're persecuting somebody, you have a belief that there's something in your heart that this isn't good, this isn't healthy, this shouldn't be here. It's like when Paul persecuted the church, he did so from a heart that believed that this was a cult and they need to be shut down by any means possible. And so he pursued the Christians. He followed them. He hunted them down. He was passionately driven to find them and to root it out. That's the word that's used here about how we make peace with one another. We follow after. When we know there's a problem between us and another brother and sister, we follow after them. We pursue them. We relentlessly, tirelessly go after them to try to make things right. We strive for that. 
Now, what I want you to notice here is it doesn't say make peace with everyone, does it? Are you in control of making peace? You can't do that. You can control yourself, but you can't control others. It says to strive. Make it your aim. And make it your aim to be at peace with all people. That's hard to do because what's your natural response when you feel uh, that your feelings are hurt? Or you know that you offended somebody? What's your natural, fleshly, carnal response? You want to stay away from that person. Isn't that our natural response? We want to avoid that person. You're shopping over at the food fair, and you really, really, really want to buy a family-sized box of Lucky Charms. And you walk down that aisle, and then all of a sudden there stands Jimmy. And you know Jimmy and you have a problem together. So what do you do? All of a sudden you don't want Lucky Charms anymore. And so you decide, you know, in fact, I don't need anything else from my grocery list. I didn't need this. I didn't need the canned corn. didn't need the peaches. I'm out of here. And you just, you check out and you finish your shopping at Kroger. Why? Because you don't want to deal with it. That's the flesh's natural response when there's conflict. But what is the spiritual response? Strive for peace with everyone. Do we need to do a Greek word study on who everyone involves? It means everyone. It means you shouldn't have ongoing conflict with anybody in your life that's your fault, where you have not done what you can to make it right. Nobody. Now, you may try to make it right, and that person shuts you off. They unfriend you on Facebook. They block your phone calls, and they won't talk to you, and they walk away. That's fine. Leave that to them. You, You can't keep pursuing that but as much as it depends on us. You say, well, what if I'm the innocent party? They're the one that hurt me. They should come to me. You're right, they should, but they didn't. Now what? Matthew 18, 15 reminds us, if your brother, right, sins against you, you're the innocent one. You're not the guilty party, per se. They've sinned against you. They've hurt your feelings. What are you supposed to do with that? you go to him and tell him his fault. And the reason that's important is this. Sometimes when people hurt your feelings, they don't know they did it. Or maybe you misunderstood them and they weren't actually saying something offensive. You just got offended anyhow. And so if you've got a problem with somebody, they've hurt your feelings, the Bible says go to them. They may not even know that they hurt your feelings, so go to them. And how do we go to them? Privately. It says go to him and him alone. And when you do, what's your heart motive? Is it to yell at them? Is it to unburden yourself? Is it to blast them? He says, no, if, you, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal of getting together. It's not to control the other person. It's to offer an olive branch. It's to seek restoration with them. You say, okay, well, fine. Well, what about that other difficult situation where I know that I've hurt them? I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know what I said. I don't know how they could possibly be offended with me for what I said, but you know that they've got a problem with you. What do you do there? Well, Jesus speaks to that also. Matthew chapter 5, 23 to 24. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, okay? So it's something you did to them. You know they're mad at you for some reason. There's some kind of offense there. What do we do? Leave your gift before the altar and go. Okay, the picture is here. Now, back then, this is a picture of worship. They're at the altar. They're offering their gift. Let's bring that into modern terminology here. You're at church. You're singing songs to the Lord. You're about to take the Lord's Supper, and you realize, you know what? There's somebody here that I know has a problem with me. Something I said, something I did. I didn't think they had a right to be offended with me, but they are. What do you do? You leave your gift at the altar, and you go to them, because you can't truly and genuinely with a full heart worship God if you know that your horizontal relationships aren't healthy. 
and you got to make it right. God says, leave your gift at the altar. Go prioritize getting right with your brother. Now you'll be in the right state to worship God. And so even if you're the one that did wrong, don't avoid them. Don't try to say, well, they shouldn't have been offended. That shouldn't have bothered them. There's nothing that I did wrong. That's on them. That's their fault that they're offended. If your brother's offended with you, we go to them too. Have you noticed that whether you're innocent, if you're, the, if, you're the, if you're the guilty party, if you're the innocent party, either way, the Bible says if you know there's a problem, go to them. That's what spiritual people do. They go to people they have a problem with. And he says in Matthew 5, he says, go and be reconciled to your brother. It's a word that, that means that we have changed our mind about them. We have chosen to do the right thing by them, even though maybe they haven't done right by me. I'm choosing to behave in the right way toward them, even before my feelings have caught up. Is that possible? Is it possible to be loving towards someone, even in your, though in your heart, you know, you're praying the imprecatory psalms upon them? God, break their teeth with gravel. You know, you're just mad. You're angry with them. Is it possible to still behave in a loving way? That's what maturity does. Immature people, they speak out of their emotions and how they feel right now. Mature people say, you know what? I may feel this way towards you, but I'm going to do the right thing by you. That's what maturity is. You know who understands this concept best? Moms. Do moms ever do that with kids? A couple kids, they're just tangling themselves up, and they're all mad and angry, and you peel those kids off of each other, and then eventually you make them do what, moms? Apologize to your brother. You know, and you get the lamest apology ever. I'm sorry. You know, you're making him do the right thing before he feels like it. And worse yet, sometimes you make him hug it out when they're done. Now hug your brother, and you hug him like the kid has leprosy, you know. Or worse yet, you ever seen this? I found this online this week. The get-along shirt. (laughs) Those kids are having a great time. What's mama trying to communicate there? You're going to treat each other right. You're going to still draw near to each other, even though in your hearts you're still offended and hurt. What do you think there? And we order some of these for church. You see a couple people singing this uh, in the worship service. You know something's going on. Got to pray for them. Better behave. Now, this is what mature people do. They reconcile. They change their mind and they behave in a godly way towards someone, even before your heart feels like it. Because we don't, do you have to feel like obeying God to obey God? You don't. The feelings don't have to be there. You simply obey God. And sometimes it won't be possible. Not everybody's going to choose to wear the get-along shirt with you. Romans 12, 18. If possible, in other words, sometimes it's not. If possible, so far as it depends on you, don't you be the problem. Live peaceably with all. Okay? We can't force the peace. All we can do is offer it. And by the way, that peace that we're pursuing with people, it's, it's an evidence that we're a child of God. Galatians 5, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, and peace. There's a whole bunch of others there too, but peace. The fact that you are a peaceful person, that you're seeking peace with others, Matthew, Matthew 5, the Beatitudes we, just, we studied, called it the growth chart of the believer. One of the things that we do is we become a, a peacemaker. We want people to be right with God and right with one another. We're all about peace. And people that pursue peace with one another give evidence that they're a child of God. So in verse 14, the word peace there that we pursue is in the, what we call the emphatic position. So it's the priority, but he also calls us to pursue the holiness without which we will not see the Lord. So people without this peace and holiness characterizing their life, it's characterizing somebody who's lost. They're not going to see God. 
They may come to church, but without this peace and holiness characterizing their life, it's evidence that they're not a true child of God. You'll know that often uh, where there's holiness, there's peace. And where there's sin, there's strife and fighting. You know, there's no such thing as a mature church that fights all the time. It's not true. I brought up earlier uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Paul talking to the Corinthians. I'll read it for you this time. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people in the flesh, as infants in Christ. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In other words, when you fight all this time, it gives evidence to what's truly in your heart. He says you're only behaving in a human way, in an unsaved human way. There's nothing supernatural about your behavior. It's very natural. It's how we come into this world, lost and separate from God. And so the pursuit of holiness in a believer's life is always going to lead them to be peaceable with one another and pursuing personal holiness with the Lord. It matters to us what God thinks about our behavior. Rather, lost people will give themselves fully to conflict. They don't care who they hurt to get what they want. James 4, they're fighting for their lust that war in their members. And Titus 3 even talks about that. He says, for those who cause division among you, he says, warn them once, warn them twice, and on the third go-around, have nothing to do with them. That's a reference to church discipline. For those who cause division, because you can't have lost people commandeering the church. Okay. Number three, we see here that the church sees to the unbelievers. Okay. The, and we're the unbelievers we're talking about, isn't, this isn't an evangelistic appeal as much as it is, see to the unbelievers that are among you, who consider themselves to be religious people. See to the unbelievers. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it, again, means look unto yourselves. Not just you inwardly. You'll get admonitions like that. You know, and Peter, he'll, he'll say, you know, to make your calling and election sure. Make sure that you are right with God yourself. But I believe this is actually an admonition to the church body as a whole. All these people that gather together religiously, See to it that nobody fails to obtain the grace of God. Fails to obtain doesn't mean they had salvation and lost it. It's talking about somebody who came too late. Somebody who was in the investigative process, never finished that process. You know, the Lord came back and they weren't ready. Or they've died and they weren't ready. We don't want to fail to obtain the grace of God. This is closer to someone who's like in Matthew 25. You ever read the parable about the ten virgins? They're all hanging out there. They all act like they're excited for the return of the groom. They all have their lamps. Some of them have oil and some of them don't. Some of them are ready for him and some don't. Some just look like they're ready, but they're not. They say they're waiting on him. They say they want to go to the party, but there's nothing inside. And so they, they end up having to go away, and they come back, and they're banging on the doors of the party. The doors have been shut. It's too late. You can't get in. They failed to obtain the grace of God. And that's going to be some religious people someday. You're going to go to church your whole life, but you failed to obtain the grace of God. Yes, you've chanted a Christian mantra. You know, yes, you came to church. You may be taught in VBS, but your heart was never changed. There was no conversion that took place. You're going to be banging on the doors of heaven. You're going to desire it, but it won't be available to you. You've been shut out. Hebrews speaks often to this issue of Hebrews because Hebrews were very religious people, highly religious people. But most of the Hebrews were going to hell. 
And so Hebrews is speaking to this. Not only here, make sure that nobody fails to obtain the grace of God, but he also described it in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, some of the hardest verses in the Bible to understand. Anytime somebody comes to me and says, I got a question about Hebrews, I just tell them, what, Hebrews 6? Yeah, how'd you know? It's everybody's Hebrews question. You know, who is Hebrews 6 talking about? Is he talking about a believer or an unbeliever? I'll read it for you. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and then have fallen away to restore them again unto repentance. Who, are, who is that person? Is that a believer who lost his salvation? Is that an unbeliever who fell short and failed to obtain the grace of God? I would argue that it is somebody who is an unbeliever. They were in the investigative process and they walked away from the Lord. And I'll tell you why. Enlightened just means to understand something intellectually. You get it. You're good at Bible trivia. When your Sunday school teacher asks a question, you've got an answer for it. You know about the Bible. But is Bible knowledge enough to get you to heaven? I mean, is God just going to quiz us at the pearly gates when we get up there? That's not what it is. The Bible, it, conversion isn't just about answering the quiz. Instead, uh, Thomas Watson, great Puritan preacher, once said, Bible knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. Bible knowledge by itself isn't enough. Knowing the right words isn't enough. Knowing who Jesus is isn't enough. He says these people are simply enlightened. He also says that they tasted. Tasted means you sampled something. Doesn't mean you bought it. Doesn't mean you took it home. Doesn't mean you believed in it. Doesn't mean you consumed it. Sampled something. We understand what that means over at Sam's Club. Sample. You understand what it means if you're watching a cop show and they do a drug bust. And I don't think they really do this in real life, you know, but, you know, they'll, they'll break it open with a knife and they'll, they'll, they'll taste it, maybe spit it out. You know, they're just sampling. Oh, yeah, that's real stuff. Yeah, that's, that's real. That's, that's bad stuff. You know, they, they tasted it. They sampled it. Notice that the policemen never sit down and say, hey, guys, let's all do drugs together to see if this thing's the real deal. They don't do that. They, they just sampled it because he doesn't want to consume it for himself. That's the believer here. It's somebody who has tasted. They've tried out the Christian life. They came to church. You know, maybe they bought themselves a, a suit coat. Maybe they have a Sunday school quarterly under their arm, and they're trying out the Christian life. They are experimenting with it. They're in the fitting room. Does this look good on me? Is this flattering me? You know, suck it in. You know, does this Christian life look good on me? Is it doing what I hoped it would do? Because I came to church hoping to just make friends. I came to church hoping that it would reunite our failing marriage. I was hoping that I'd come to church and they'd somehow fix my kids. You know, I'm with them all week long, but I'm hoping that one or two hours in Unity Kids is going to change my child. And then we try out the Christian life and realize, eh, it doesn't really work for me. I'm going to leave it. Okay? That's somebody who has tasted of the heavenly gift. It also says that they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the harder one. But I want you to understand, the first two descriptions of that person are just referring to somebody who's trying something out. They know about it, but they're not committed to it. So it would be interpretively inconsistent for this third one to all of a sudden start referring to a true believer. So just bear that in mind. But then this same word here, shared in the Holy Spirit, it sounds like they had the Holy Spirit, but let's, let's also look at how it was used elsewhere. In Hebrews 12, 8, it describes those who have experienced, been partakers of the discipline of God. Luke chapter 5, in the, the, the miraculous catch of fish, it's describing the other fishermen who were there with them, and they were participants, partakers in that event, in that experience. 
doesn't mean they did the miracle. It just means that they were witnesses to it. They could see a, a divine outpouring of God's power. Now, we see that all the time in church. You see, you see God gloriously convert people. You see people get baptized. You see lives change. You see marriages reunited. You see the power of God all the time and the activity of the Holy Spirit in changing people and making them people of the Spirit. But it doesn't change you. So shared in the Spirit means a partaker of the event, an experience of it. You've witnessed the power of God. You know, I can go to a Cincinnati Reds game and participate, if you will, partake of that game, but it doesn't mean I'm on the team. And that's who these people are. They're people who are, uh, they're spectators in church. They're coming, they're wearing the, the Reds jersey, they're singing the songs, take me out to the ball game, but they've never joined the team. Okay, this is somebody who is an unbeliever. And by the way, if you try to teach that Hebrews 12 teaches that it's truly a believer who has lost their salvation, what do you also have to teach from this passage? Once lost, always lost. Why? Because it says at this passage, if you put this together, it is impossible in these cases to restore them again under repentance. So once you sin, the Bible says it's not hard to restore them to repentance. You can't do it. So if you can lose your salvation from sinning again, which everybody does, You've lost it, and you can never get it back. I don't think there's anybody alive who wants to try to teach that. Anyhow, so that's some of these Hebrews. There are unbelievers in their midst, people who have tasted, they've experienced, they've witnessed the power of God. They're trying it out. They're spectating church. They're just kind of in the back rows, and they're just kind of looking and kind of observing what's taking place, but they're not part of the life of God. They're not truly converted. They're not changed. Okay, And the Bible says we are to see to those people. The problem is, how do we see to the unbelievers that are in our midst so as to help them, to share the gospel with them, to encourage them? Sometimes it can be hard for us to spot them. Galatians 5 gave us a list, remember, of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and 23. How can you tell somebody who's truly converted? They will have these qualities in their life and increasing. They will be increasingly people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness and self-control, faithfulness, all of this. In that same passage, it also gives us another list of works of the flesh. He says the works of the flesh are manifest, some of your translations. Some of them say evident. It's a word that means uh, like a light shining in the darkness. It's totally dark and somebody flicks a lighter. It draws your attention. It's obvious if you know the signs what an unbeliever looks like. This is who they habitually and consistently are. And he gives us a list. He says sexual immorality. They just live for it like we're going to see in our example here with Esau. He just lives in immorality. Impurity, sensuality, it's just all about his senses and just about gratifying the flesh. Sorcery, I don't think we have any sorcerers in here today. Uh, but we do probably have people who have struggled with enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. We can relate to that, can't we? Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, and as I warned you before, that those who do such things, what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are characteristics of an unbeliever. How do you spot an unbeliever? That's, this kind of stuff characterizes their life. Believers can still do some of these things, but we don't do it habitually, consistently, and when confronted, we repent. That's the difference. It's, we don't, this word here, those that do, is, is the idea of those that practice such things. It's a practiced, habitual, regular way of life. It's who you really are. 
Now, even in our text today, how can you tell who's religious but lost? Verse 15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Okay, this is an unbeliever. That no root of bitterness, we'll talk about that, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled, that no one's sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, Hebrews 12 here talks about a root of bitterness. Now, often, especially in counseling circles, people will misuse this verse and say, oh, man, you know, you just got a root of bitterness in you. You know, you've got some unresolved conflict and anger in you. And that is true. You, people can have that. But it's not true here. It's not from this text. What is a root of bitterness according to this text? Look at it in context. What's he talking about? He's just said, he's just describing somebody who has failed to obtain the grace of God. It's an unbeliever. And then he rephrases this and says, that person is a root of bitterness. In other words, God's got a big wheat field here that he's planting. The Bible often uses gardening terms. And you've got these wheat stalks that grow up and they bear fruit. That's how you know they're God's children. They grow up and they produce grains of wheat. Unbelievers grow up next to the wheat. They're still in God's field. They're in the church. They look like wheat. They smell like wheat. They look, but the problem is they never bear fruit. It's a weed. And so a root of bitterness is a weed in the garden. It grows up in God's church, but they don't bear fruit. They're not real. There's no life in them. And so that's what a root of bitterness is. It says, make sure that we don't have these roots of bitterness just growing up everywhere and choking the life out of the church. He says one of the evidences that somebody is a root of bitterness is that they are sexually immoral and unholy like Esau, that they are, they're just people of the flesh. They're more than happy to sacrifice things of the spirit for the things of the flesh. They're very fleshly minded. They're very earthly minded. They only care about earthly things and gratifying themselves. Moreover, it says that a root of bitterness springs up. And what does a root of bitterness do when they spring up? According to your verse there. Go ahead and look down there. Root of bitterness, they'll spring up and, what does your Bible say? Cause trouble. That's what roots of bitterness do consistently, habitually. They cause trouble. This word trouble here means to excite, to stir up, to create this anxious tension. It also is a word that means to disturb, to frustrate, to annoy. They're stirring up dissension and conflict within the church. That's what roots of bitterness do. And so that's one of the evidences that it, someone could be a root of bitterness. Now, as believers, can we still annoy one another? Wives, can I get an amen? Okay. We men, we know how to annoy our wives sometimes. We're not talking about that, where we can frustrate each other and then we get it right. We're talking about somebody who just persistently, whenever there is conflict in a church, it's always the same handful of people every single time. When you know how to spot an unbeliever, friends, it's, they're not hard to find. Roots of bitterness consistently, habitually cause trouble. That's what Hebrews 12, that's the term they use here. Consistently, they're stirring it up, trying to create anxiety, frustration, and anger. They're sowing discord. They're backbiting, creating dissension. They're complaining. They're stirring it up. Now, I want to make a note here. Causing trouble and disagreeing are two different things. We want you to disagree in this church, but be nice. If you have something that needs to be said in a business meeting, we want you to say it, but be nice. If you've got an issue with one of the pastors in the church or you've got an issue with one another, you have a problem with your deacon, we want you to confront them. We want you to talk to them. If you have a disagreement, speak out, but be nice. Go to them privately. Ask questions. When we go and talk to people, it's not to unburden ourselves and to yell at them. It's to ask questions. Hey, I saw this. 
I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused here because it looks like this. Help me to understand. And then when they've explained, now you can keep talking. So disagreeing is different from causing trouble. But the Bible says that roots of bitterness tend to cause a lot of trouble. Now, the problem is when roots of bitterness in churches begin to cause trouble, what do God's sheep naturally want to do? They're peacemakers, aren't they? They've got the fruit of the Spirit, peace. And so we think that to keep the peace, we just got to give them everything they want. Oh, somebody's mad in the church. Obviously, we did something wrong. We need to change to make that angry person happy so that they'll stop causing trouble. Does that work? Has that ever worked? All we're doing, friends, I hate to, not trying to be mean here, but you're feeding the weeds. You're feeding, you're, you're feeding the tares and you're cho- letting them choke out the wheat. If we allow that to remain destructive within a church, what will it do? That a root of bitterness will spring up, it'll cause trouble, and by it, do what? Defile many. Their sinful habits become other people's sinful habits. Their unaddressed immorality becomes immorality in the whole church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Their discord becomes a lot of people's discord. Their anger, their problems, their dissension, their rivalries, their sinful habits just start to infect an entire church, and pretty soon the entire lump that is the church is infected. And so we don't ignore these things. That's why we have to see to the lost that are among us. If you know what the symptoms are, lost religious people aren't hard to spot. It's painful. But if you just ignore them, it's going to create problems. One time in China, my wife had, I guess, decided to do some grand experiment. And she wanted to raise her own, like, organic vegetables or something, whatever organic means. I thought all matter was organic in the plant world, but I digress. She wanted to raise up, like, her own, I don't know, what was it, like, lettuce and peppers. And so we, she invested in a system called aquaponics. You ever done that? You have some nasty-looking fish aquarium down below with some big old fish, and you feed them, and then it pipes in the nasty filth water up into this bed of rocks above it where you've planted some seeds. And eventually, things start growing, and we were pretty excited because we saw some stuff growing uh, all over this box, and we're like, wow, we're going to enjoy the fruit of this produce. And some of the stuff grew up and then just died off right away. But there was this one plant we were highly successful in raising, and it just continued to grow up big and beautiful. I mean, eventually, like, the stalk was like half an inch to three-quarters of an inch thick. I mean, it was this gigantic plant. We still didn't know what it was. We had no idea what it was going to do. It hasn't produced any fruit yet. It doesn't look edible, but we kept feeding and watering this thing. Eventually, though, it choked the life out of everything else in the aquaponics garden until finally the friend who sold us the aquaponics came over and said, well, we only got one thing to grow. Here it is. And he comes over and looks and goes, that's a weed. And so we had taken all this time, and we just gave it all of our energy and all of our efforts. We allowed it to survive, but it choked out all of the real things that bear fruit. Now, had we been able to identify the weed, friends, we could have identified, we could address the issue right away, and maybe we'd be eating some organic lettuce, if you want to, uh, or you could, you know, eat some peppers or whatever we were growing. But we didn't know how to identify it. We didn't know how to respond appropriately to this, and so this weed grew up, and here's, the, here's a symptom of a weed. It eats all of the resources around it and chokes and kills off all the life that's around it, too. You wonder why sometimes we have so many dead churches around here. Friends, a lot of times it's because the weeds have taken over the garden. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be hateful here. I'm just saying, Christians, we've been called to look unto ourselves and to exercise something we don't like to talk about called church discipline. That we don't just let the weeds run the church. 
We don't let the people who are the noisiest voices, the angriest people, the people that are willing to gossip and sow discord and backbite to run the church. This is Jesus' church. And as a church, we are called to tend this garden well, to look to this ecosystem that God has created amongst us. We are to see to them. Back to Esau in verse 17, he says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You know, for years, I didn't know what the it was. I really thought it was that he, he tried to find repentance. It's not that he wanted repentance. This it here modifies the blessing. Esau, carnal as he was, man of the world as he was, man of the flesh as he was, sexually immoral as he was, he still wanted the blessing of God. In other words, Esau still wanted to go to heaven. A desire to go to heaven, friends, is not an indicator that you're a child of God. Esau wanted the blessing, but he couldn't get it, though he sought it with tears. Why? Because he never came to a place of repentance. He never changed his mind about sin. He was unconverted. He remained the same his whole life. That's the evidence that somebody is an Esau. They're religious. They still want spiritual blessing. They want to go to heaven, but they're people of the flesh. They just, they're living for their own flesh, fleshly lust and desires. The problem was he finally got to a place, he got so good at saying no to God and prioritizing his flesh that pretty soon he had no opportunity to return back to being a spiritual person. He sought the blessing of God with tears. and He couldn't get there. He couldn't come to a place of repentance. Here's the greatest lie of sin. You can repent whenever you feel like. You can repent when it's convenient for you. You keep playing with this sin, own this sin, embrace this sin, stroke this sin, feed this sin. It's never going to hurt you. And yeah, we know it shouldn't be here in my life, but you can get rid of it when you want to. That's why also in the book of Hebrews it says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin is this, that you can continue to do it and it won't hurt you. You can repent when you feel like it. But the problem is, whenever God convicts your heart and you know you should change something about your life and you don't do it, the Bible has another term for that. It's called hardening your heart. And when you do that enough times, like anything, you, you practice the violin enough, eventually you'll get good. If you practice saying no to the conviction of God long enough, what will happen? You'll get good at it. And pretty soon you're going to be like Esau. You, you couldn't repent if you wanted to. Esau said it was, it was impossible to renew such a one to repentance. He had just said no to God so often and so many times. And so that's why the very, uh, in that very same passage it says today, if you hear his voice, if you can still hear God, what he's saying, you still understand it, you still care what God says, you still are concerned that you're right with God, today, if you can still hear, if you still care, don't harden your hearts. Don't say no to God. Do something today. Don't wait till tomorrow. You don't have tomorrow. You could get out in your car today and get hit by a turnip truck, and you're dead. I mean, welcome to Unity Baptist Church, first-time visitors. We're grateful that you're here. But that's honest truth. You don't have tomorrow. You don't know what a day will bring forth. You're not guaranteed that Christ won't return. And so don't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow is, as it's been said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's day. Today is the day of repentance. And so, friends, if there's something that God is laying on your heart that he wants you to do, he wants you to be saved, today is the day. Maybe God's laying on your heart to be baptized. We have, I think, four who are looking to be baptized right now. Would you like to join them? If that's something you haven't done, friends, today is the day. Maybe you know God wants you to join a church, not just to be a spectator, but to get involved and to serve and to give and to love and interact. Today is, is that day. 
Maybe there's a sin in your life that you have put off giving up because you enjoy it so much. Friends, today is that day. You aren't guaranteed tomorrow. In fact, even if you do show up tomorrow, your heart may no longer be in a place where you even want to repent. It might be like Esau. Our heart is just hard. We have two options when God convicts our heart. We respond in repentance and we change or we harden our heart against God. Friends, I encourage you, if God is doing something in your heart today, look to him. Father, we thank you today that you've given us the opportunity just to interact with your word and to just contemplate our own hearts. God, what would you have us do? What is, what is the command that I need to do today? Father, I pray if there's any here who does not know Christ, they know that they're a sinner. They know that you have to judge sin. They're even aware that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but they haven't made that commitment to, to make him the Lord of their life, to confess him as Lord, to believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. God, I pray that today would be that day. Lord, if there's somebody here who knows they need to be baptized, but they have put it off for some reason, God, I pray that today is that day. God, if they need to be joining a church, God, that today would be that day. If there's a sin in our life, God, that today would be that day. God, free us from sin. As Christ has already done so on the cross, is offered freely to all this gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray that there would be none here who fall short of obtaining the grace of God. So we just look to you today and pray that you would convict our hearts of whatever it is that you need to conform us into the image of your Son, God. And may we choose today to make that that day where we repent and we change. We ask for Christ. From all of us here at Unity, we just want to say thanks for spending time with us today. If you'd like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, let us give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people.